Hi there. Welcome to the Central Library tonight. On behalf of Pratt CEO Carla Hayden, I'm Roswell Encina, Director of Communications here for the Pratt Library. And I would like to welcome everyone to another special edition of our Writers Live series. It's always a treat when I go inside the Poe Room and I see this room packed with people eager to hear our authors. Now, um, our Writers Live series has pretty much generated from Pulitzer Prize winning authors like Mr. Taylor Branch, who's here tonight, to uh, best-selling authors, to even wrestler Chris Jericho, who was here several months ago. So you can see the big diverse of authors that we get here. But of course, you know, we're so happy every single time we get an author who's from Baltimore, who has a Baltimore connection. Um, just to give you a little heads up, make sure you grab our compass on your way out or check our website, prattlibrary.org, to see all the other exciting authors and other events coming to the Pratt Library. And I know none of you are here to hear, listen to me tonight, so I just want to welcome everyone who I understand there's some folks from the Sun. Um, friends of the author are also here. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Sally Jacobs. much. Wow, that's the best I've gotten at any of these talks. Um, I have to say, um, as many of you know, I'm from Baltimore, um, and I come home often. When I do, I'm always running from one place to the other to see friends and family. So for me, this is a real treat to have so many people under one roof so I don't have to go running around so much. Um, so thank you all very much for coming, those that I know and those that I don't. Um, I want to tell you one quick story from the road of a new book author so that you're very sure that you're in the right place tonight. Um, I've been doing a number of interviews, many of them with radio, and I did one last week where the um, interviewer had actually read the book, which was quite astonishing, and he kind of understood the book. He got it, and he says to me, wow, he says, you know, that Barack Obama Sr., he's just like Barry Lyndon, isn't he? I thought, I don't know who Barry Lyndon is, but whatever. I said, yeah, he's just like Barry Lyndon. So they take a break in the radio program. When he comes back, he says, so we're continuing an interview with Sally Jacobs, the author of The Other Barry Lyndon. And I think, oh, my God. And went on to describe the book as The Other Barry Lyndon all the way through. So in case you think this is a book about Barry Lyndon, it is not. It's a book about Barack Obama Sr., the father of our president. Um, this book uh, grew out of a story I wrote for the Boston Globe, where I'm a reporter and have been for more years than I like to count, uh, before the election. Uh, at the time, reporters were trying to learn about Obama, and there was quite a bit known about uh, his president, uh, sorry, about his mother. She was local, uh, relatively speaking. She was accessible. People knew something about Ann Dunham. But the father seemed to me to be very unknown. Um, I had done many political profiles, many of them about fathers of politicians, and I vowed to myself that if he won, uh, I would write my first book about him. Uh, but even before that Obama name became famous, in the course of doing the newspaper story, I found Obama's senior story a very fascinating one. Uh, Obama, as you probably know, is a Kenyan. He's a member of the Luo tribe, um, which is the third largest of the 40 tribes in Kenya. Uh, and what's most interesting about him uh, from a historical uh, standpoint is that he was born at a crucial moment in Kenyan history, uh, right before um, the forces began to gather seeking independence. Uh, nationalists were calling for independence from the British who had occupied them for so long. Um, around the time of independence in the mid-60s, Obama Sr. was in his late 20s, and he was a force to be reckoned with. He was handsome, he was articulate, uh, and he was a brilliant economist. He also had a great booming voice, so commanding that if you heard it, you never forgot it. Uh, one person described it to me as a black velvet baritone. Uh, it was something I wish I had heard myself. 
Um, at the time of independence, when he was a young man, independence was achieved in 1963, um, there were only 500 people in Kenya who had college degrees, 500 young men and women. These were the people that were going to create Kenya out of its difficult history. They were going to create a new country. Uh, these were very important people. And Obama Sr. was one of them. He had not just one degree but two. He had a master's from the University of Hawaii, and he had, uh, sorry, a bachelor's from the University of Hawaii, and a master's uh, in economics from Harvard. These were very potent degrees. Very, very few people had degrees at all, and almost no one had one from Harvard. So Barack Obama Sr. Was, should have been a big man. He should have been a key player in Kenya's unfolding story, but he wasn't at all. And the reasons for that are many. Um, one of the main reasons, I think, uh, had to do with his childhood. He had a very abusive father who was very brutal to him, uh, beat him, beat his mother, threatened to kill his mother once, and was so violent that his mother, senior, Barack Obama senior's mother, ran away uh, when he was very young, around 9 or 10. I feel like a senior never really recovered from that, and I feel like he always felt uncertain about himself, despite a huge presence, a lot of uh, brazaggio. He never really uh, felt as confident in himself as he might have. Um, another one of his difficulties that undermined him was his chronic drinking. Uh, even in Nairobi's hard drinking culture of the time, and it was hard, he was the head of the pack. Obama Sr.'s nickname was Double Double, and the reason he had that nickname was when he went into a bar, uh, he would order a shot, a first round um, of his favorite liquor, which was Johnny Walker Black. And he would start out with two shots, and then he would order a chaser, which was another two shots. So he's starting with four shots of whiskey. Friends of his that drank with him tell me he could have four of those. In other words, he would have 16 shots of whiskey. Now, he was a good drinker. He could keep functioning. He was able to work at times. But that kind of intake, you know, undermined him and led, contributed to one of his other weaknesses, which was his arguing and um, combativeness. Barack Obama Sr. liked to challenge and disagree, really often for the sake of disagreeing. Some of the young men who were with him in school remember they would say to Obama Sr., I'm going to take the cows out to the field over there on the left when they were boys, and Obama would say, no, 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 you can't go to that field. He knew nothing about what field to go to, but he would argue and argue about that. Uh, and when he was an adult, he translated that into political uh, arguing. The new president of Kenya, Jomo Kenyatta, uh, was not someone that liked to be argued with. After a short period, uh, a peaceful period after independence in 1963, Jomo Kenyatta began to move steadily towards the right. This was a great heartbreak for many Kenyans who felt that their country should be for all Kenyans. Uh, but many people didn't argue too much about it because there were huge political and personal consequences. Obama kept his mouth going all the time. He argued, he challenged, uh, in many cases for the right reasons, arguing for the little man, for the Kenyan. Uh, but it earned him the disfavor of Jomo Kenyatta, and it caused troubles for Obama. Uh, much of his misfortune was his own creation, but some of it was genuine political consequences. Um, either way, by the 1970-71, six years after Obama had returned to Kenya from the United States, he was unemployed. He's 29-30 by this point. He's lost three promising jobs, and three of his uh, four, ultimately he was married four times, three of his marriages had failed. Uh, he lived alone uh, in a hotel room, often drunk, uh, and he was not on speaking terms with his, most of his children. Later, he would get resurrected. But for a long period, five or six years, he was really a man uh, who was lost. Uh, another one of the reasons for that has to do with the women in his life, and there were many women. 
Um, when I decided to write the biography of Obama in uh, 2008, after the election, um, I headed out on a rather long journey. I figure all told, I traveled about 80,000 miles. I went to Kenya four or five times, Hawaii, many places in the United States where there are Obama relatives. But the first place that I went was uh, a suburb of London called Bracknell. And I went there because that's where his first wife lives to this day. Her name is Grace Kazia. And it was a fitting place to go to begin this book because Obama uh, had women in his life for better or worse. And in many respects, they caused problems for him uh, in the United States and when he got back. Um, Obama, as I mentioned, was from the Luo tribe, and that's a polygamous tribe. Uh, polygamy is very common. Uh, men have uh, multiple wives, and they do to this day. It's interesting to me that when people want to criticize the president or tar him with his father's experience, they often accuse him of being a womanizer, a philanderer. But the truth is that Obama should have had multiple wives, given how he grew up. He was a luo. If he hadn't had multiple wives, it would have been quite odd. Now, the truth is he did it somewhat differently than your typical Luo. In the Luo culture, you have multiple wives, but you live together on a compound. The first wife has a very prominent position, second has a house, third, fourth, and so on, and you live together. Obama did just the opposite. He was a, Obama senior. He was a serial marrier. He would marry one woman, head off to the next, and never tell the first, on and on and on. Throughout his life, many people wondered how many wives he had. Uh, among them, most prominent among them, were the wives themselves, because they themselves really didn't know who he was married to. He was married four times. Uh, the first wife was Grace Kazia, the one in London. He married her very young. When he married the second time, this is the president's mother, Anne Dunham, he told her he had another wife. He did not tell her he had two children, and he told her that he had been divorced from wife number one, but he hadn't. In the Luo culture, divorce is very rare, and if you want to get divorced, you go before a council of elders. Both sides present their argument why they're not getting along, uh, and the elders decide if you can or can't get married. They don't really like divorce or separation, um, and then, then they rule on whether you can be separated. Obama never did that. So Grace Kazia to this day claims that she was married to Obama Sr. all her life. His third wife uh, was a woman from Massachusetts who followed him to Kenya after his Harvard days. Her, he did not tell about wife number two, the president's mother, but he did tell about wife number one, Grace Kazia. And he suggested that in good Luo tradition, they all live together in the same house, share the same children. That wife was shocked, horrified. She was from Massachusetts, and she wanted nothing to do with this, so she refused to live with wife number one. Wife number four, he married... Well, he began to marry. It's a long process in the Lua culture. Um, he married about six months before he died, and he never told her about any of these marriages. So she had no idea. To her horror, after he died in a uh, car crash in 1982, they had one young son together, the whole thing erupted into a violent domestic brawl that, that took place in the courthouse. I happened to find... Um, the file of this mess. It, it revolved around the first wife, Grace Kazia, challenging the fourth wife, the first son challenging the last son. There were eight children. And they all were arguing over this very, very small inheritance. It was about 50,000 shillings. Uh, but it was a fierce battle. It went on for about 10 years. I was able to get the file because the lawyer for wife number four wanted me to get it so that she could uh, make the claim. Um, at the end of the uh, file, there was one page that was perhaps one of the most interesting and historic of all, and that was a letter from Barack Obama, Jr. In 1997, no, in, uh, sorry, 
Right after he had won uh, the Senate in Illinois, he wrote a letter in which he disavowed any claim, two sentences long. He said, I have no claim. I am not a part of this. And that was the end of it. Um, the only other interesting footnote to it was that a, fed, a judge in Nairobi ultimately ruled on the number of wives and who was the winner and the loser, and Grace Kazia lost. He said she was not the last wife standing. He gave it to wife number four, the young woman who never heard about any other women, other wives, and she got the small inheritance, although she still had to argue about it a bit. Um, these women are important not because there are so many of them, but because they were confusing to uh, officials in the United States. And by that I mean both the university officials where he attended and immigration officials. Um, every year Obama, like any other foreign student, had to re-up his visa, so-called. It was actually called an extension of stay. It was a very routine thing. Uh, and immigration officials would take a look at how is he doing in school, is he financially solvent, is everything okay? Um, the first year they didn't pay much notice to him, uh, 59 to 60. <clears throat> By the second year, um, they started to notice what he was doing, and that was because he had so many women and he dated so many girls, they were beginning to wonder about it. Um, I was able to get his immigration file. Uh, and I know this because there's a long trail of letters by immigration authorities wondering what is this guy doing? And it begins with the University of Hawaii foreign student advisor and she writes to immigration and she says, this Obama senior is a playboy. I've told him he must stop running around with all those girls. And Obama says in response to her, he goes, I'll try. Well, he didn't try very hard because shortly afterwards he married Ann Dunham, <coughs> who he met in a class at the University of Hawaii. Then immigration was getting really worried because they knew he was married already. Now he was married to an American. So the question was, is he a polygamist or just a good luo? What should they do? They thought about deporting him. They thought about making him go back home. But they really couldn't figure out what to do with him. Uh, he had excelled at the University of Hawaii. He was Phi Beta Kappa. They didn't really want to send him home. He was the first African student. So they let it alone. And they let him move on to Harvard, where he went to get his PhD in economics. To understand Obama Sr., uh, it's important to understand what happened to him at Harvard. And to understand what happened at Harvard, it's important to understand how much Obama Sr. achieved. He came this close to getting his PhD in economics at Harvard University. This is a man from Africa who grew up uh, dirt poor, with no shoes at all. He walked barefoot to school. Only the luckiest of people got to go to school at all. And he made it to Harvard University. He had, by 1964, passed all of his exams, oral and written. The only thing he had left to do was to write his dissertation. So that's where he is in 64. Around that time, immigration, again, starts to look at him in understanding his visa application, just this routine renewal. And they're worried about him because now he's dating a woman from Kenya who's a little, in a little bit of trouble herself. She's a little bit of a bad actor. Don't quite know why. She takes off to London, I think, to get an abortion. I don't know that. But he was dating her. Remember, he's married twice now. Uh, and they describe him in these notations in the immigration files as a slippery character. They're worried about him. So when his visa application comes up, they go to Harvard and they say, what's with this guy, Obama Sr.? Who is he? Well, Harvard never paid much attention to all this. He was doing very, very well. He was an African student. He was everything he wanted. Well, the head of the international program begins to look into him, and they don't like what they see. He's married twice. He's dating all these girls. They think he's married a third time to a woman in Cambridge. He's not. He would later marry this person. This was the third wife that followed him. Um, 
they had already approved Obama staying in 1964. The form is there. They've signed off. They say Obama Sr. is welcome to come back, 64, 65, to finish his dissertation. Well, within three weeks of hearing from the INS raising questions about his womanizing, he also had money problems, they write him a letter, two paragraphs, and they say, I'm sorry, we don't have enough money. You cannot come back. They never looked into whether he was married to multiple people beyond a first blush glance at it. They never considered his Luo tribe, that polygamy was very common. They told him to leave. Obama was heartbroken. This degree, a PhD, was, would have been the cornerstone of his life. This would have been what he based his career on. He would have been a stellar character, uh, not to mention that he was so bright back in Nairobi. And they took it back from him. And he goes, it's all written in hand, just heartbreaking detail. He calls immigration. He says, why are you doing this to me? Why am I being sent back? And no one ever really told him why. They just said Harvard didn't have enough money, which really wasn't true because Harvard had already accepted him. And so he ar argues, he struggles, and then he had to leave. He goes back to Nairobi. He doesn't have a PhD. He does have a master's. Uh, and he goes on to have you know, a very rocky career. Um, he always claimed to have had the PhD. In Nairobi, it's a fairly small community of economists. They all knew he didn't have it, but everybody calls him doctor to this day. Um, it's sort of a point of some amusement. But for Obama, you know, this was a critical thing. Uh, I think it broke him in some respects. I think it undermined his confidence, and he never knew why. So, so these are some of the things in the book. Uh, there are other bits of news, uh, I think, things that uh, we haven't heard before. One of them is that uh, Obama's parents uh, took steps, we think, to put him up for adoption. At least his father wrote that. He told immigration that Ann Dunn was putting their baby up for adoption. Obviously, it didn't happen. Um, but none of that, do I think, are the most, are the, none of those things are the most important thing to take away from this book. Uh, what I think is most important is something else, and that is the profound role that chance plays in all of our lives. Because I believe, uh, having spent a couple of years understanding Obama Sr., that if he uh, had raised his son himself, if he had been an active parent, uh, I don't think Obama would be in the White House today. His father was a brilliant man, but he was self-absorbed and not a nurturer at all. And so in many respects, because he was not Obama's father, I think is why we have him as a president today. Anybody has questions? Fire away. Lois. I tried very hard, as you can imagine, to get an interview with him, uh, and I was able to go to the White House and make my case. Uh, there was only one thing he responded to in the book, and that was the question of whether uh, his parents took steps to put him up for adoption. What there is in the immigration file is when Obama Sr. is being interviewed for this uh, immigrate, for his re-up of his visa, you know, he wanted to present a pretty good image of himself, right? And a twice-married man with a multiracial baby might not have been the best thing. So he says, don't worry. That baby's going away. My wife is talking to the Salvation Army, and we're putting that baby, the president, up for adoption. Did he ever do it? You know, it's very hard to get adoption records. Uh, the truth is the Salvation Army did have a house for unwed mothers uh, in uh, Honolulu. I thought it was interesting that he said Salvation Army. All of Ann Dunham's family members that I talked to say she would never have done it, never mentioned it. So I think Obama lied, to be honest. <laughs> I think they may have talked about it. 
you know, it might have been an issue. Anyway, a long answer to that is Obama's response was that he didn't think his parents had done it and his mother would have told him if they had, that being considered putting him up for adoption. But that's the only response I got from him. Fifty thousand shillings. So it was. It would be um, all the equivalent of about eight or nine thousand dollars. Eight hundred thousand. No, eight or nine thousand. Eight or nine thousand. In nineteen eighty-two, so it wasn't nothing, um, but it wasn't a lot. You said his father was very argumentative. Is there any way we can transmit that quality to his son? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm often asked about his uh, efforts to. Um, his conciliatory efforts, which in fact Obama Sr. also did, uh, he really tried to bring extremes of Kenyan politics together, which was kind of notable. But I don't think the son inherited that much of the argumentativeness of the father myself. But. Uh, two questions real quick. Uh, you didn't make a reference to Fort White as to where she was from. The second question would be, once he leaves Hawaii with the new baby, leaves his uh, wife and new baby and goes to, I think, Boston, well, he's there for a while. Right. What What is that period like? Does he go back? Does he go back to spend time? Mm -hmm. Is it a significant amount of time? Very little time? Yeah. And when does he finally just totally just go? Right. Um, the fourth wife is living in Atlanta now. She was a Kenyan also. She was a young. She was twenty when they married. Um, when he left, he never went back. Uh, he went to Cambridge and was in touch with his family. Um, was in touch with Anne a bit. Um, Apparently, Anne thought she was going to go to Boston with him. There are some friends she mentioned this to. She goes to Seattle for reasons that are not quite clear. He goes to Cambridge. Um, but she told people in Seattle she was going to go there and be with him and support him. Uh, and he told her these incredible stories about what would happen if she went to Nairobi, many of them made up to dissuade her from going. Uh, he said that... Um, that he would have to marry a black woman so that he could have all black children, all Kenyan children. She would have to put up with that. He said that their baby, their mixed-race baby, would not be looked at fondly because mixed-race children were not admired in Kenya. None of these things were true. <laughs> but I think he made them up uh, because he didn't want her to go with him. So he goes to Harvard. They do communicate, and, and then he leaves. Uh, they're still married, and I think it's about two years later they get a divorce. His father leaves when he's about nine or ten months old. Uh, they have one month together when he's ten years old in Honolulu. And then they write when he's in his 20s. That's the last time he saw him when he was ten. According to the president's memoir, Dreams of My Father, Dream from My Father, they wrote for a while, and then that too ended, I think, when he's in his early 20s. Second question. So His relationship with his children are so fraught. Um, he had um, not very good relationship with any of them. The two oldest ones, they're eight children. One of them died in a motorcycle accident. That leaves seven. Two of them I don't think are his children. They claim to be, but the judge ruled that they weren't. They're Grace Kazia's children from a later period. I don't really think they're his. So then you have five children. The two oldest, um, 
he was so self-absorbed. It was so much about him. Uh, he really didn't pay much attention to them. It's interesting to me that of those five children, since Obama um, ran for the presidency, four of them have written memoirs about their father, including the president. Four of them. And really, each of them is an effort to understand their father, uh, who they are in relation with him. They're partly... Uh, autobiographical about themselves, but clearly it was so chaotic to be a child of this man. It was a struggle. One of them wrote a, um, Mark um, Nasanjo is in Obama. The mother remarried, and uh, he got the brunt of it. He was from the third wife, and he was very young when Obama's career was failing in the 60s. Um, and he would come home, Obama Sr., drunk as could be, would beat his mother, and this poor child would witness all of this. And it really, I think, broke him. Um, he wrote during the election a book um, in which he tells sort of the story of his life. And it wasn't an I'm an Obama book. It was a book in which he finally comes to terms. Uh, it's what he calls semi-autobiographical. He finally comes to terms with this person that he's had such hatred for and such animosity. He could never use the Obama name. But in the course of knowing Obama the president and sort of going through his own emotions, he finally has been able to use the name. Um, and I find that interesting. And the same is true with some of the others. But it's a long answer to they were very complicated relationships. Well, one of them lives six blocks from the Boston Globe, and that guy lives uh, about six miles from the Boston Globe. Um, so those are the two that I know best, although they're not talking very much. Um, there's, there's a number of them. There's cousins here. Um, there's a variety of them, um, some closer than others. Omar Obama is um, the half-brother of Barack Obama Sr., and Barack Obama Sr. brought him here and put him in a very Tony prep school in Cambridge, uh, and he's been there ever since. Uh, he was ordered deported in 97, and he's been living here illegally, apparently doing everything right, but not being deported, and he got drunk about a week ago and r drove by a cop who picked him up. So the question is, what happens to this guy? Uh, the first thing he said um, to the policeman is, they said, you have one phone call. He says, I'd like to call the White House and call, talk to my nephew. <laughs> I don't think he made the call. But the White House did say that they were not going to get involved in this. Who knows? Um, but, you know, he's been here all his life. He has nothing back in Kenya now. He does have family there. But should he be deported? Um, that's kind of an open question. So we're trying to talk to family members there about what his life would be like if he went back there. Uh, he has family and everything else here, so it's, it's a genuine question, I think, what should happen to him. Yeah. You know, I find Obama Sr.'s journey, Jr.'s journey, the president's journey, extraordinary, to be honest with you. Love him or hate his politics? Love or hate his politics? Um, you know, this is a man who was abandoned not just by his, um, by his father, but in some respects you could say his mother. You know, he had no father present. His mother goes off to Indonesia, and, you know, she makes a choice about her career. She's going to stay in Indonesia. She was married. And sends him back uh, to Honolulu to live with his grandparents. You know, this man decided who he was going to be, I think, uh, and even if you hate his politics, he became the president uh, and the first black president at that. 
I find it really an, an amazing human tale, and I, I feel really lucky to have been able to tell the father's story. Uh, because I think it's an important piece of history, um, understanding a human being's journey like that. It's a piece of American history. Um, so that's my feeling. I would love to talk to the president about his father. You know, I found a lot of information about him his father didn't know, uh, not just the adoption, but the being kicked out of Harvard, which I think was profound. Uh, his own grandfather literally threatened to kill his grandmother. He took a sword out. They fought a lot. And he took a sword out, and he dug her grave. This is Obama Sr.'s mother. He dug her grave, and he started to, about to cut her throat. And a neighbor comes by, and he says, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. And on the strength of that and several years of arguing, she decided to leave. And um, she runs away a few weeks later, and she says to Barack Obama Sr. and his sister, come and get me if you can. And they do. They wait for two weeks. This is one of the most extraordinary stories I heard that many people told me, different, slightly varying stories. They do. He's nine years old. His sister is 12. And those two children decided they were going to find their mother. And they walked. It must have been 200 kilometers. It took them two weeks. And they walked only at night. Okay, this is Africa. They're walking through jungles with animals everywhere. They're walking at night, not the daytime, so that adults won't find them and send them back home. And they finally get to Kanyajiang, which was the village where Obama Sr. grew up, and the elder there contacts the father. They don't see their mother, and the father, Anyanga Hussein, comes and beats them and takes them back home to a subsequent child, which was quite complex and painful. Um, anyway... The father became a complicated person and I think was very wounded by some of that, which relates to the son, I think. Do you think that having a wayward father helped propel Obama into becoming, uh, wanting to be yeah. such an achiever? I do, I do. I mean, sort of the many successful people that had absent fathers. You know, if you read Dreams from My Father, I feel like, Obama Sr. is sort of a lost junior, the president, is kind of a lost young man for a while. Uh, he's wandering around, he's smoking pot, he's not taking anything very seriously except for uh, basketball. But there comes a moment when I do think, uh, and this is, he's writing to his father, and he's struggling with what is it to be a man in America? He has no father, himself present. What does it mean to be black in America? These are all important, hard questions. My reading of that memoir is that he comes through that period and he has answers. And he's defined what he's going to be as the best a person can. Uh, and he finds role models and he heads out, you know, and he is successful in a sort of obvious kind of a way. So I think very much the absence of his father and maybe his mother too helped him define himself. Part, we are because of genetics mm. and because of environment. And so with uh, the president, obviously most of his environment is from uh, his mother's family. Because of you've written the book and done all the research on the father, and even though you haven't interviewed the president, is there anything genetically that you see that may be coming from mm. his father's family, even though he wasn't there, that you see in some of the ways that the president is that you know, only yeah. probably came of genetics. Thank you for asking that question, uh, because that's an important question that I not addressed at all, and the answer to that is a big yes. Um, there are many things that they share, um, and as do some of his other children, and the chief uh, quality is their brilliance. You know, Obama Sr. was a very, very bright 
brilliant person. There are people in Kenya to this day that will talk to me about how smart he was, how they hired him. Economists, despite his drinking, would hire him in. They'd give him drinks uh, because they so valued his abilities. They literally would send him down to the bar, Tina's. They'd say, here's 50 shillings. Go get a drink. Come back because they so cherished what he could do. Um, you know, Obama Jr. obviously is very, very smart. Mark Nassanja, the one I mentioned to you, who I think was really emotionally very broken, he's incredibly smart. He helped create the GPS. Uh, he's a concert pianist. He's an incredibly talented person. So many Obamas share that gene. Uh, despite Obama Sr.'s tendency to argue, he also tried very hard to bring Kenyan politics together at a time which it was extraordinarily hard to do so. Um, Without getting into details of Kenyan politics, there was a huge polarization, and you did not criticize President Jomo Kenyatta. And Obama walked right into the mall, and he said, you are betraying people, um, you cannot do this, and he was defending the socialist Oginga Odinga at the time. So he really tried to bring those things together in many ways, just like Obama, the president, does. Um, this isn't a genetic thing, but I found it interesting that both Obama, Barack Obamas had a missing parent, uh, which I think really shaped who they were. They, one had a missing mother, the other a missing father. So those are the things I think they share. Uh, the, the, the scholars that you got to review the plan were so impressed with the quality of the plan. Yeah. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, Obama Sr., she's referring to this period um, when there was this great polarization, and the issues were who was Kenya really going to be for? The notion building up to independence was that Kenyans would control their company, the country. The British were going to be gone. They could take it back. It was theirs. So what kind of economy would they have? Uh, many Kenyans, like Obama Sr., thought the average Kenyan would benefit from this. But uh, Jomo Kenyatta began a real drift to the right. Uh, property was being amassed in the hands of a few. Foreign investment was allowed to come in and dominate the country. This was profoundly disappointing to many Kenyans who thought this country should be theirs, uh, not a small group. Obama Sr. wrote a, a really hard-hitting paper um, looking at the economic plan, sessional paper um, number 10, looking at the Kenyan plan and criticizing it, saying it was too much wealth amassed in the hands of the few. He proposed um, pretty creative things. They were not sort of uh, cliche, you know, knee-jerk lefty things. He had some collectives. He had collectives mixed with capitalist ventures, many ways to keep uh, property in the hands of the average Kenyan. But he also recognized that the country needed a lot of capital. It was a young country. It needed money to develop. So it was a pretty creative blending of capitalism uh, and also socialist principles. The leftist was uh, Ogingo Dinga, who espoused very extreme Soviet-based models. Uh, but it was a creative program. But it didn't get him very far. It got him, made Jomo Kenyatta his enemy, and he probably was punished for it for years afterwards. Can you talk about uh, how the family members you mentioned in After that question evolved from my perspective over the course of the two years that I was in Kenya. You know, certainly in the beginning, there was great joy. Obama was, you know, one of, the, one of them. This could only bring great riches to them, great fortune uh, to have this American president. Um, 
the truth is they feel very let down now. You know, Obama hasn't been to Kenya, and there's a lot of disappointment about that. Um, I went there uh, shortly after the election um, in January of 2009, and that's when excitement was at its highest. People literally near the village where they lived would be saying, is, is Air Force One going to land here, or is it going to land over here? And they were putting up hotels for the White House staff, and, you know, everybody's really waiting. Well, they're waiting and waiting, and nothing happened. He didn't come. Um, from a broader perspective, um, when Obama went to Africa, I forget which country it was, his first trip to Africa, there was a lot of disappointment. People were very sad that he hadn't gone there first. You know, Obama was making a statement that Kenya's political situation was not okay. There were reforms he wanted made. They weren't being made. So on a kind of overall Kenyan level, I think it's fair to say now that people are pretty disappointed that he hasn't done more for Kenya. Um, in the immediate family, it's a very complicated family. Um, some of them are in touch with him. I don't claim to know all the inside of that. However, I do, just from my being there, um, his, some of his siblings have, um, what should we say, very uh, tempestuous relationships, and sometimes they do call the White House. One sibling was having a fight with another sibling, a big bad fight with, you know, things going through windows, that kind of fight. And the victim sibling called the White House and said, you need to help us get through this. And, you know, I don't think Obama took the call. Um, a sibling, that was the oldest sibling, the sibling on the youngest, the other end of the line, George, who's gotten a lot of publicity. He was the last child, never knew his father. He lives in the slums, smokes pot, um, is really kind of a lost character, but when the president came, uh, he was brought into the fold and he met uh, the president and his mother, who's the one who lives in Atlanta, approached White House officials and they said, oh, the president, no problem. Obama will talk with George. That's his name, George Obama. You just call the White House. Well, <laughs> you can imagine her calls have not been uh, returned. So I think she feels quite disappointed, which in all fairness, they shouldn't have said that to her if they didn't, they weren't going to return the call. So I think George feels pretty put out. Um, but, you know, the flip side of that is that George is kind of a celebrity in the slums there. You know, people think, oh, he's an Obama. He must be talking to Obama all the time, which, of course, he's not. But he does get a little bit of pizzazz out of the relationship. <laughs> so it's complicated, and it varies by sibling. Um, Mark Nasanjo, the one who's in China, uh, the one that I describe as being so wounded, it probably has one of the closest relationships um, partly to the president, partly because he's removed um, and he's not embroiled in the Kenyan group. He lives in China. He um, does engineering there and uh, works with children in an orphanage. Hmm? Yes, copy. It all depends on who, which Obama I was asking. Um, there were some good things and some bad things. Um, overall, I felt um, I had a lot of support from the larger group of Obamas. There's a village there called Kadyadyang, which is where Obama Sr. was born. There's hundreds of Obamas. Uh, and I went in there with my photographer and interpreter from the very early day, and they loved talking about it and everything. They were telling me all these great stories. There were photographs. Um, and then I talked to um, an Obama... It's a short version of this. There was the Obama here who had the immigration issues, the aunt in South Boston, and uh, she was going to talk with me, and then she changed her mind and decided she didn't like me. I'd never, I had met her once for two minutes, and she didn't like me. The truth is because she was writing a book herself, and she didn't want me to write a book. Uh, so she decided she was going to stop the book. So 
In the village of Kanyadiang, there is no electricity, uh, but there are cell phones. And she got on her cell phone and started texting people. And she said, Sally Jacobs is the enemy. She is a Republican. She is being paid by the Republican Party. Do not talk to her. And they believed her. <laughs> so it caused a lot of problems for me for a while. I probably lost a small chunk. Um, but I found another Obama, a great guy, a cousin uh, of seniors, two cousins who were, um, their fathers were brothers to Obama Sr., who I became great friends with. And they took me back into the village. And relationships were repaired. Uh, and it worked well. But the nucleus, mom, there's a mother, the grandmother, Obama Sr.'s mother, lives in a little compound with uh, one of the children and a few others, and they would never, ever talk to me after, well, after a first interview. So it went kind of like that. Yes? Okay, last question. Okay. In, in, um, in Obama's book, he said he had a relationship with one of his sisters. Mm-hmm. Like, she came and stayed with him. Right. Is that relationship still ongoing? Yes. I think she's, um, she and Mark, the one I mentioned, probably are the closest to him. But she's gotten embroiled of some of the family issues. And although I think Obama, the president, is closest to her, I think in some ways he's just getting a little bit of a hands-off uh, relationship because it's so complicated. He has people fighting and screaming, calling the White House from a village in Nairobi, saying, fix the problem, fix the problem. So anyway, thank you all very, very much. Thank you for coming. <laughs>